from deep inside your radio. 78 degrees in London Town. Sunny London Town on sunny, hot, freezing after. Yeah, it's, it's hot in London, ladies and gentlemen. And when it's hot in London, you know it because nothing is air-conditioned, except maybe you'll see people huddling in a Starbucks who never had intended to buy coffee. And they're not there for the Internet. They're there for the... Well, congratulations are in order this week to the American Psychological Association, which decided that it's uh, at a meeting in Toronto. Yeah, it's America. It's America. Uh, to to uh, alter its ethics policy so that no longer will shrinks partake of, participate in, assist in enhanced interrogation. We'll talk more about that later in the broadcast. The, uh, the Republican presidential debate this week in uh, Cleveland. Hello. No, but no candidate said hello, Cleveland. Imagine my dismay. Uh, it would have won, you know, who, 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 whose votes would those have been? Um, but, of course, one of the major questions tackled was uh, immigration, the state of the American border, whether or not there's going to be a wall, or as, as one candidate proposed, or as another candidate proposed, a fence. Wall or fence? How do you sit? Uh, meanwhile, here, on the other, in the rest of the world, the United Nations uh, this week declared that there's a state of emergency regarding refugees from Africa trying to get into Europe. Migrants, uh, you may have seen the stories if you watch uh, any newscast that pays attention to anything beyond the United States. News stories of the uh, migrants attempting to sneak into trucks in Calais, France, going uh, the trucks coming through the Channel Tunnel to get to Britain. Yes, they're in France, and they want to come to Britain. Go figure. I guess they just were, t- you know, they're migrants, but they don't really want that that good a diet. Um, it would suggest, ladies and gentlemen, that this is more than a national problem. It would suggest it's almost as if the main accomplishment of the information age was to let the people in the south half of the world all of them know that the people in the north half of the world are a lot richer. Hello, welcome to the show. It's summertime, summertime, some, some, summertime, 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 summertime. Shut them books and go away. Say goodbye to Dell's good days. Look alive and change your ways. It's summertime. No more studying.
it's summertime, summertime, some, some, summertime, 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 summertime. It's summertime. From London, England, where they all want to come, I guess. They're in France. Why? I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this edition of the show. And now, ladies and gentlemen, news of the warm, won't you? I didn't say won't you last week, and somebody tweeted angrily at me. Thanks for listening. Soft, listen to the warm. We can listen to the warm. Well, you know, hopes that future efforts to extract excess carbon dioxide from the atmosphere could spare our planet the worst impacts of climate change have been dimmed this week. Thanks to a new study, finding the acidification of oceans could take centuries to reverse. You got that much on you? Centuries? Sit down. Rest a while. The world's oceans have already become about 30% more acidic since pre-industrial times. Seas are absorbing about one quarter or more of the excess carbon dioxide triggering a chemical reaction combined with heat stress caused by warming waters. The rising acidity levels are already affecting complex ecosystems from plankton to shellfish and corals. I myself don't regard plankton as that complex, but, you know, that's just, I'm biased. I'm hopelessly biased. Researchers at Germany's Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research, now, I wouldn't be using POTS as a dam, but that's the... My, Examine the prospects for massive geoengineering efforts to remove CO2 from the atmosphere. They say it would take centuries for the oceans to become less acidic. Assuming carbon dioxide removal could be ramped up to 90 gigatons a year, about twice current annual emissions, oceans would not be brought back to pre-1750 levels until at least 2700. Good morning, the researchers said in a paper published this week in Nature Climate Change Journal. Geoengineering measures are currently being debated as a kind of last resort to avoid dangerous climate change, says one of the researchers. The business-as-usual scenario of unabated emissions, even if the CO2 in the atmosphere would later on be reduced to the pre-industrial level, the acidity in the oceans could still be more than four times higher than then. It would take many centuries to get back into balance with the atmosphere. More acidic conditions make it harder for creatures to form shells. So grow hair. What's the... Warming waters were also likely to mix less, reducing oxygen and nutrient transfers. This um, gets us to another story in this week's news about the growing dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. I'll get to it in a moment. Uh, that's what mixing waters uh, would help to prevent is a, a, a hypoxic areas in the oceans. Um, the, these are factors, these more acidic conditions. They would tend to prolong the deep ocean memory of anthropogenic changes, according to the paper. The ocean remembers. So don't pee in it for what. Pete Stratton, an associate professor at the Institute of Marine and Antarctic Studies at the University of Tasmania, Tassie, said the paper shows what we should already realize. What's needed is aggressive efforts to reduce emissions now rather than aggressive programs in 50 years' time to remove it, he says. Ocean circulation can already be very slow. Some of the oldest water takes 1,000 years to return to the surface. Boy! Man, just thinking about that water taking that long. <coughs> Stratification impacts are relatively different to quantify right now, but we're definitely seeing the warming right now, he says. And uh, another 
co-author of the paper and an advisor, scientific advisor to Pope Francis for his recent climate encyclical, said the chemical echo of this century's CO2 pollution will reverberate for thousands of years, 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 thousands of years. News of the warm copyrighted feature of this broadcast. So on to the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. Now, you know what that is. You know what that is, right? The Gulf Zone is an area of dangerously low oxygen water in the Gulf along Louisiana's coast. It's bigger this year than, the, than Connecticut and Rhode Island combined. Now with Connecticut and Rhode Island combined. It's the 11th largest dead zone since um, they began mapping this thing in 1985. A researcher in Louisiana result released results of this year's measurement, concluding this year's dead zone extends over more than 64,000 square miles, more than three times the goal that was set by uh, the federal and state governments for their voluntary efforts to cut down the nutrients that feed the dead zone. So that was a success. It's also about the same size as the combined islands that make up the state of Hawaii. Look at it that way. Dead Hawaii, the movie Elvis never made. It would have been even larger without winds out of the west pushing some of the low oxygen water back to the east, says a uh, person who led the mapping research cruise. They had a cruise to map the dead zone. That doesn't sound so bad. And uh, I think Bon Jovi played on it. The dead zone refers to Gulf waters where two parts per million or less of oxygen are measured, the standards for what scientists call hypoxia. The oxygen levels are low enough to kill bottom-dwelling organisms, and they deserve it. I've seen some of those that can't swim away and cause many fishery species, including shrimp, to avoid the area. An unusually long period of higher-than-normal Mississippi River conditions helped form this year's low-oxygen area. Higher-than-normal river means lower-than-normal oxygen in the Gulf. The dead zone is formed mainly by nitrogen and phosphorus used as fertilizer in the Midwest. Thank you, Midwest. Washed off farmland in the upper Mississippi and Missouri and Ohio River basins. These nutrients combined with nutrients from sewage treatment, fertilizer and sewage, they go together like sewage and fertilizer. Sewage treatment plants and septic tanks that are released throughout the river's watersheds. They enter the Gulf in the spring and summer. The fresh water forms fresh. You know what I mean. The river water forms a layer on top of saltier Gulf waters and feeds huge blooms of phytoplankton. There are those plankton again. I guess they're more complex than I thought. At the surface, the phytoplankton die, don't send a card, and sink to the bottom where they're decomposed by bacteria, which uses up oxygen in the water during the process. So the low oxygen water takes place. This year, the researchers found those low oxygen conditions along uh, 6,400 square miles during the cruise. At least they had a cruise. Notable this year is a large expanse of the dead zone combined contained levels of oxygen below one part per million, with much of the area near zero creating a condition scientists call anoxia. That's lower than hypoxia. This is uh, three times larger than the goal set by the Mississippi River Gulf of Mexico Watershed Nutrient Task Force of reducing its size to below 1,930 square miles by 2015. So you failed, or we failed. Somebody failed. And uh, 
if you want to, I think I think a dead zone cruise is a wonderful idea. You know, it mixes the bad news with the good. You could you can see just how bad conditions are, and yet get drunk at the very at the very same time. I'm uh, I'm up for it. I don't know about the rest of you, ladies and gentlemen. Follow the dollar. Speaking of Louisiana, a new report from Standard and Poor's, people who give, uh, who gave all those uh, crappy mortgages triple A ratings when they were packaged in, into security, so you know they're good. The new report from Standard and Poor's says Louisiana's economy is giving the state a chance to grow even more. The agency reinforced Louisiana's current double A credit rating. The report says that the BP oil settlement, that is to say the $18 billion that BP is having to pay as a price for having fouled everything, is a positive influence on the economy and long-term state prospects. So foul us some more, BP. Please, won't you? Ladies and gentlemen, I've, um, I've mentioned here, I think before on this broadcast, an interesting point about when, what happens when people, uh, as we hear is happening more and more, when people surrender their landline telephones and go totally, go mobile, as the Who once said. Um, it's not all beer and Skittles, let's put it that way. Uh, a point reinforced by a decision made this week by the FCC and reported by Ars Technica, a technical website. The FCC, in fact, imposed new rules on phone companies that intend to turn off their copper networks. It is been a trend. I think I mentioned that Verizon was really in the vanguard of trying to uh, get people to surrender their landline phones, their their phones which are wired with copper. The the phone connections are wired with copper. I think the phones are made of plastic these days. What isn't? Um, And replace them with fiber optic cables. But the FCC said the phone company should feel free to make the switch as long as they keep providing the same services to customers. Now that's the catch. Um, phone companies still need approval from the FCC before shutting off copper networks in cases where they intend to reduce or discontinue services. One new rule approved this week for the first time requires providers to directly notify customers of plans to retire copper networks at least three months in advance. Now, why would you need that? Changing technology does not change responsibility, says the head of the FCC. Fiber brings great cost savings, great efficiencies, and great opportunities for new services. But it does not bring the opportunity to walk away from the responsibilities that govern the relationship between those who build and those who use the facilities. Unquote. Okay, fiber allows much greater internet speeds than copper. We all want that, don't we? Its downside for landline phones is this. Copper-based phones during a power outage can continue to work. They draw electricity from the central telephone office. When there's an emergency and the power goes out, your fiber-based phone shuts off. Hello? Hello? 9-1? Hello? That's why the commission voted in a separate item to require phone providers, including cable companies who um, sell those telephone services over the Internet, to tell new and existing customers about this power limitation. Yeah, see if you can tell what size print that's going to be in. You need more glasses? And offer the option to... Now, how do you get around this? Well, you can buy 
a backup battery system, don't you know? That's right. In instead of something that you got for free, you can buy a replacement that's almost as good. Isn't that the modern world? Phone providers will have to order offer an eight-hour backup to begin with, but within three years will be required by the FCC to offer an option for 24 hours of standby power. That's uh, compared to the non-ending standby power that the, your landline phone offers you now. But 24 hours is enough, right? No emergencies. Today's action will empower consumers to make informed choices and support their need for 911 service during emergencies, the commission said, as long as the emergency isn't longer than 24 hours. The battery requirement still falls short of copper landlines that stay on indefinitely during local power outages, but a 24-hour backup could last many days if consumers only powered on when absolutely necessary. So, if you know, if you don't want to be called in an emergency, you just want to make calls out, it can last longer. Customers could also buy extra batteries to make up a ba make a backup system that lasts multiple days. Though, according to Ars Technica, this could be cumbersome. Verizon's current system, backup, requires 12 D-cell batteries. Those are the big fat ones to give you 24 hours of phone service. So imagine, well, 12 for each day. For a week, just set aside a room. Set aside a room. Something resembling progress, ladies and gentlemen. Don't you think? The war on this is your brain on the war on drugs. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit has issued a ruling about drug dogs, according to the Washington Post. U.S. versus Bentley. The latest in a series of rulings in which the federal courts refuse to consider the possibility that police departments may manipulate the dogs to authorize unlawful searches, or at, ver at the very least, police agencies aren't ensuring the dogs are being trained to minimize that possibility. The problem with dog-sniffing uh, dog drugs, drug-sniffing dogs, is that domestic dogs have bred into them an ability, a trait that trumps the ability to smell drugs, the desire to read their owners or handlers and to please us. If a drug dog is not specifically trained to compensate for this, it will read its handler's body language and confirm its handler's suspicions about who is and who isn't hiding drugs. This has been confirmed by tests of canine units that have shown that control tests designed to fool handlers are much more likely to trigger false alerts than control tests designed to fool the dogs. The fact that mind-sniffing dogs tend to be more accurate than their drug-sniffing cousins further illustrates the point. Handlers have fewer preconceptions about where mines are located, but they also have a strong incentive for the dogs to be accurate about finding them. Even there, the dog-handler bond can become problematic. Some detect mind detection experts are turning to rats. <laughs> that's, that's the mark of desperation, I would say, turning to rats. The problem is that invasive searches based on no more than a government official's hunch is exactly what the Fourth Amendment is supposed to guard against. The U.S. Supreme Court rulings on the problem have not only accounted for this, have not only not accounted for this issue, but have given police agencies a strong incentive to ensure that drug dogs aren't trained to act independently of their handlers' suspicions. A drug prone to false alerts mean more searches, which means more opportunities to find and seize cash and other 
property under asset forfeiture policies. A drug dog's alert in and of itself is often cited as evidence of drug activity, even if no drugs are found, thus enabling police to seize cash, cars, and other property from motorists. In U.S. versus Bentley, Lex, the drug dog, had a 93% alert rate. That is, when Lex was called to search a car, he alerted 93% of the time. Basically, he was a probable cause generator. His success rate was 59%. That is, police actually found drugs just six of the ten times Lex told them they would. So, four of every ten people Lex alerted to were subjected to a thorough roadside search that produced nothing illegal. That's enough about that. That's your brain on the war on drugs. So now to the American Psychological Association. And, and I say, it's a vote this week to um, put in a new ban on any involvement by psychologists in national security interrogations conducted by the United States government, even non-coercive interrogations conducted by the Obama administration. The vote followed an emotional debate. The ban was needed to restore the organization's reputation after that scathing independent investigation we told you about. We, me, told you about a few weeks ago on this broadcast. Uh, The association's president-elect said she hopes the vote would persuade psychologists who quit the organization because of its involvement with Bush-era interrogations to rejoin the group. Offer them a tote bag, babe. A mug. No. Nice tickets to uh, summer concerts. Leaders and members said they were stunned by the lopsided vote in favor of the ban. As Backer said as late as Thursday night, they weren't sure it would even pass. The ban would would only prohibit involvement in what the association defines as national security interrogations. Most interrogations of important terrorism suspects are now conducted by the high-value detainee interrogation group led by the FBI that also includes CIA and Pentagon personnel. That group also includes psychologists who both conduct research and consult on effective means of interrogating terrorism suspects. Pentagon officials have said psychologists are still assigned at Gitmo where they oversee voluntary interrogations of detainees. Where would the voluntary part be? You want to be detained today or would you like to hang there for a while? A psychological association official said psychologists could be subject to ethics complaints if they continued to be involved in national security interrogations after the new ethics code was put in place. The vote in favor of the ban prompted an immediate reaction among military psychologists. If that's not an oxymoron. Um, But the involvement of psychologists in the interrogations enabled the Justice Department to issue secret legal opinions arguing the interrogations were safe because they were being monitored by health professionals, even though psychologists do not have medical degrees. So after the vote, about 50 members of the Psychological Association's Military Psychology Division, how does that make you feel? Including several who were in uniform, held a separate meeting in another conference room, they expressed frustration and anger. Well, of course, they're military psychos. I'm, let, express your anger. Don't bottle it in, military psychologists. A retired army psychologist spokesperson said the group may consider splitting off from the APA. 
so they can, I guess, propose that uh, psychologists be armed. Now, on a related subject, this um, this week there was a um, a broadcast on British television. And it was a documentary series that uh, achieved something that had never been achieved in the history of um, the last 15 years or so. You know that the, um, the um, practice among American officials has been to refer to those interrogation proceedings as utilizing enhanced interrogation techniques, EITs, they're called. Uh, to avoid, like the plague, the T-word, to deny vociferously and continuously that uh, anything that went on in the EIT protocol uh, was anything like the T-word. So this attracted my attention this week. The documentary program was called Panorama. It was on the BBC. And uh, one of the guests interviewed was Buzzy Krongard, who was a high-ranking CIA official during the first three or four years of this century. And here's part of what he said. Because it was legally approved, the CIA has always maintained that what it did was not torture. But Buzzy Cronkart, one of the most senior men responsible for the program, made an unprecedented admission during our interview. Do you acknowledge this is torture by any common sense definition of the word? Well, let's put it this way. It is meant to make him as uncomfortable as possible. So I assume, you know, for one without getting the semantics, that's torture. I'm comfortable with saying that. We were told by legal authorities that we could torture people. Was this torture by beginners? (laughs) Uh, I mean, that's what it sounds like. We had to do something. So it was learning as you go and trying to balance uh, efficacy and morality. And uh, you're saying, look, wait a minute. You're saying we were clueless, right? Well, the people that whose job it is to tell us, they were clueless too, the Justice Department. Well, the Justice Department told us it was legal to torture people and they were clueless. Professor at UC Berkeley, John? He's looking at you. He just wrote and ran. Torture memo man. He went and banned the band. Memo man, you got you some detainees. You don't know what to do. Do you read them their Miranda rights or cover them with pool? Are you doing something illegal or proper through and through? There's only one guy to call, the one to ask is you. Who is you? He's in that secret clan. 
torture memo man Who is you? He had a clever plan Who is you? Torture memo man Oh, you've got some evil doers And they will not say ooh A little pain and torment might change their point of view But before you waterboard them You wonder, could they sue? One guy has got the answer The one to ask is you Shut your mouth, I'm talking about God you Who is you? He just rose and ran Who is you? Torture memo man Memo Man All these laws and treaties You want something new This war may last forever You need to turn the screw He's teaching law at Berkeley He'll drop the other shoe The Bill of Rights expires The one who knows is you Him if you can Who is you? Torture Memo Man Who is you? He just banned the band Who is you? Torture Memo Man From London, this is Le Show. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Yes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to say the other T word now. Um, Trump, he sort of, uh, well, he didn't sort of, he uh, hijacked the uh, Republican, hijacked it and lowjacked it at the same time. Certainly gave it, uh, as he's been uh, wanted to point out in the last couple of days, a huge ratings boost. 24 million people, according to the ratings, and you know they're never wrong, uh, watched uh, Thursday's Republican debate from Cleveland. Um. And there was a, uh, a contretemps early on, thank you, and yet they want to come to London. Uh, a, a very early on, when uh, Megyn Kelly, a um, hostess, uh, host, I guess now, host, sure, host, of a Fox News, she's now got higher ratings, and the ratings are never wrong, than Bill O'Reilly. Uh, so she's a very popular, in the Fox News universe, uh, host. Of a, of a nightly program, and she asked Trump about statements he'd made regarding women in the recent past. He was not pleased. Um, he expressed that displeasure mildly during the debate. And then uh, later on, uh, the next day, he's been absolutely everywhere, on the phone, doesn't have to, uh, he, you know, he, he, here's the thing. He may not be as rich as he says, but he's rich enough that he doesn't ever have to show up in a TV studio. He just gets to call in like every every sh- like Meet the Press is the Rush Limbaugh show. So he called into CNN, and uh, this is part of what he said uh, to Don Lemon on Friday night. What is it with you and Megyn Kelly? 
Well, I just don't respect her as a journalist. I have no respect for her. I don't think she's very good. I think she's highly overrated. But when I came out there, you know, what am I doing? I'm not getting paid for this. I go out there and, uh, you know, they start saying, lift up your arm if you're going to. Then I then. And, you know, I didn't know there'd be 24 million people. I figured, but I knew it was going to be a big crowd because I get big crowds. I get ratings. They call me the ratings machine. So I have, uh, you know, she she gets out and she starts asking me all sorts of ridiculous questions. And, you know, you could see there was blood coming out of her eyes, uh, blood coming out of her wherever. But uh, she was, uh, in my opinion, she was uh, off base. Coming out of her wherever. Those words reverberated around the Internet, as I'm sure you know by now. And uh, many people took them to mean something uh, about her, her identity as a woman, uh, to which Trump replied, you have to be a deviant to think that. So that's the state of, of that particular argument at the moment. Meanwhile, we learned this week that he's been talking to more people than just Megyn Kelly. Former President Bill Clinton had a private telephone conversation in the late spring with Trump, at the time the billionaire investor, or the investor, and real, realty, reality tele, realty television star, really, uh, real estate television star, was nearing a decision to, to run for the White House, if in fact it's what he's doing. Four Trump allies and one Clinton associate familiar with the exchange told the Washington Post that Clinton encouraged Trump's efforts to play a larger role in the Republican Party, as well as offering his own views of the political landscape. Clinton's personal office in New York confirmed that the call occurred in late May. An aide to Clinton said the current presidential race was never specifically discussed and it was only a casual chat. The revelation of the call comes as many Republicans are criticizing Trump for his past ties to Democrats, including past financial foundation, uh, donations to the Clintons and their foundation. Trump took the call from his office at the Trump Tower, a concrete building covered in gold something. Um... The 42nd president listened intently as Trump discussed his political ambitions. And then Clinton analyzed Trump's prospects and his desire to rouse the GOP base, according to the Trump allies. The tone of the call was informal. Clinton never urged Trump to run, the four people said. Rather, they said Clinton sounded curious about Trump's moves toward a presidential bid and told Trump that he was striking a chord with frustrated conservatives and was a rising force on the right. One person with knowledge of Clinton's end of the call said the former president was upbeat and encouraging during the conversation. Clinton aides declined to speak on the record about the call, saying the conversation was personal. Quote, Mr. Trump reached out to President Clinton a few times. President Clinton returned his call in late May, said a Clinton employee. One Trump advisor said Clinton called Trump. The advisor didn't provide specifics about how the call came about. Trump is a longtime acquaintance of the Clintons, both of whom attended his third wedding in 2005. Although he and Hillary Clinton have traded barbs since he entered the race. And um, one of Trump's, you, you can't necessarily depend on a Trump source to tell who called whom. Uh, Trump is in an argument with his former advisor, Roger Stone, who used to work for Richard Nixon with Nixon's dirty trickster um, as to whether Stone resigned, as Stone says he did, or wh as whether Trump says he did, he fired him. Anyway, the, uh, the matter, that may not have been 
the last phone call, phone conversation between Clinton and Trump. Sounds like another episode of Clinton something here on the show. Clinton something, the campaign years. Well, I'll tell you something, Don. Uh-huh. Based on my years of experience, uh-huh. it's uh, it's never a good idea to go hormonal on a woman. Hey, my friend, you've got it backwards. The bimbo went hormonal on me. Uh, she asked incredible questions she'd never ask of any of the other candidates or, or even Mexicans. Mm-hmm. By the way, did you see the polls? The Mexicans who watched the debate loved me. They already sent me money to pay for the wall. It's incredible. Okay, look, there's a tracking system on this phone circuit. It sends out an alarm whenever the word bimbo is used. So I know. I, I, I mean, I don't know, but I can imagine. Mm-hmm. Look, but you know, it's interesting about politics. The minute you attack somebody, they turn on you. <laughs> Business, as long as the check clears, you can say whatever you want. Yeah. And it's far as experienced is concerned, mm-hmm. no disrespect, because after all, I do take your call. Well, you may have stuffed a lot of women. I've ended up marrying them. There's a big difference. I, and by the way, did I mention I got a standing ovation from the women who watched the debate? I just found this out. I'm and, just saying you touched a chord with a lot of people out there when you first announced your candidacy. Yeah. And we had our first little chat. Yeah. Now you seem to be touching more nerves than chords there's a big difference like bill yeah. i can call you bill can't i because i've given you a foundation so much money that i can't even believe you're laying this negative thing on me but <laughs> let's say just for the sake of winning the argument uh-huh. that i said that one of the other questioners on that disgusting fox panel was thinking up questions with his nuts instead of his brain <laughs> you think we'd be having this conversation i mean this politically correcting is killing us absolutely killing us like a mexican on steroids and some of them are good people on steroids yeah. and by by the way, I was talking about blood coming out of Megan Kelly's nose, but in the heat of the moment, I couldn't think of the word nose for that disgusting thing that just sits there in the middle of that big, fat, ugly face. There was nothing sexist about it. Okay, I- look, you've got a great brand. Huh? You're bringing some important issues to the attention of a lot of people who don't normally pay attention. Thank you. But when you're running for president, every moment is in the heat of the moment. The only verb a candidate for president can safely use with the word blood is shed, as in, not in vain. Yeah. You've got it. A... Oh, sorry. I thought... Hi, hon. I'll, I'll get out of your way. I just stopped by to get a couple of the new iPhone charging cords. Turns out I only had the old ones. Oh, okay. Don, I'll talk to you soon. Be careful out there. You know, you don't have to take that crap from that dried-up, ugly dog. She probably <laughs> never even had blood coming out of her nose. <laughs> Who was on the phone? I was. Sorry, I owe the foundation, but it's a local call, so... Who was on the other end? It wasn't who you think. Okay. So who does that leave? It was Don. Henley? Trump. Oh, not again. He called me. On the foundation line? Well, he was returning my call. I didn't want it showing up on your personal phone records, toots. I was thinking about you. Mm, always. (laughs) Well... I still do reserve a little bit of me time, but... I hope I don't have to remind you that I'm a candidate for the Democratic presidential nomination. (laughs) I'm perfectly... And that your pal, Mr. Trump, 
is a candidate for the Republican nomination. Oh, now he's your friend, too. We both went to his wedding. He gave money to your campaign and to our foundation. It was your foundation when he gave it. It was our foundation when we finally got around to spending it. All right. Let's just talk about the optics for a minute. Word got out about your last little chat. How's it going to look when word about this one gets out? And how's that going to happen? Oh, I don't know. Perhaps Mr. Discretion, Mr. Disciplined Candidate, will somehow tweet it in the middle of the night while getting his toes sucked. That was Dick Morris who liked that, and that image disgusted even me. You know what I mean. It just looks like you're... undermining your wife. Again. Oh, let's not go there. Hun, we live there. Okay, toots. Cards on the table, table on the floor. I was advising him to knock off the anti-woman stuff. Mm, how thoughtful. Because the more viable he is as a candidate, the longer he stays in the race, the more attention he soaks up from the other guys and Carly Fiorina, the weaker the ultimate Republican candidate is. Does that sound like I'm undermining you? I'm sure it would if I thought about it for a while. You know there's only one person in this world I care about more than you. Chelsea? Her too. Okay, hon. One thing. Yeah? Don't take the charger cords with you this time. Youthful angst and post-nosebleed yearning for power. Together they add up to Clinton something. The campaign years.
turn colder. That's how it ends.、Mm. I bet you told her you'd still be friends. Do you wonder what she is doing now? Now, news of the godly. Day after the deadline for filing clergy abuse claims against the Saint Paul and Minneapolis archdiocese, the interim archbishop Bernard Hebda described the number of victims who stepped forward as quote staggering. Quote, it's helped me to realize how much pain there can be out there in these issues. That there can be 407 people carrying these burdens. He said, he became the archbishop, the interim archbishop in June. That number encourages me not to underestimate that. He said, the U.S. bankruptcy court showed a final tally of 669 claims against the archdiocese, 407 for clergy abuse. Another 150 or so are from parishes seeking indemnification, indemnification from abuse claims. The others were fired, filed by creditors and individuals, including a whistleblower who filed a notice of claim for alleged defamation, and a former priest charged with sexual misconduct who seeks compensation for living expenses and other support. But it was the avalanche of individuals who alleged that archdiocese priests had sexually abused them as children over the past decades that surprised Hebda. When the archdiocese first filed for bankruptcy at the beginning of the year, it faced a fraction of such claims. He says the archdiocese plans to look into the details of the priests involved to be able to learn whether there was anything distinct about the archdiocese that led to so many filings. I think we'll have more insights into that, he said in an interview. The claims span 75 years in、uh, 50 parishes with four. <laughs>、uh, the archdiocese is working hard to find assets to cover the claims. They may be selling the chancery building. Across from the St. Paul Cathedral and another administration building. So, if you want to buy a church building, now's the time. They're motivated by her now. It's、uh, time to review another festival of people answering interview questions, even though they may not. Be continuing anything with the word 
So, How do you determine that somebody's going to commit a crime that hasn't happened yet? Yeah, right. So, so these are, are statistical tools. Will they ever be paroled? So these are these tools are, are used throughout the criminal justice system already. Has it been uh, implemented actually in Pennsylvania, or are they still just talking about it? So in Pennsylvania, they passed a law uh, back in in 2010. This racial profiling uh, a problem that they have to worry about uh, when they're trying to make these kinds of risk assessments. So it's a huge issue. What about age? So age is, is one of the most most powerful predictors. Who actually formulates the tool? So the tools are, are generally developed by um, by statisticians and social scientists. Might there be uh, uh, ways of finding alternatives to uh, prison using these same tools? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Virginia, for example, that uses this in a limited way, tries to identify kind of the lowest risk offenders. How did this come to uh, interest you as a chief economics writer? Well, so I, I write a lot about uh, about demographics. For the sake, for the sake. Maybe it's just because he likes to say so that he got into it. Don't, did it ever occur to you? All right, then. The apologies of the week, ladies and gentlemen. The University of Minnesota Athletics Director has resigned. Norwood Teague announced he's leaving his post amid two sexual harassment incidents. Again, in Minneapolis with the sexual thing. In a statement to a TV station, Teague said he had too much to drink and sent inappropriate text messages. He was visibly shaken while he read his statement, according to the TV reporter. After careful and painful consideration, I've decided to leave the University of Minnesota. He said, a recent university event, I had entirely too much to drink. I badly towards nice people and sent truly inappropriate texts. I apologize to everyone involved. This neither reflects my true character or true character of this great, great university. It's a great, great... No. Uh, he said the incident happened about two weeks ago. He'll be seeking help for his alcohol use, which I don't mean to make fun of, ladies and gentlemen. Don't send me the letters. And reevaluating my life and career. I've taken immediate steps to get help with my alcohol issues, and I take full responsibilities for my actions, he said. The uh, resignation follows the report of two recent incidents of sexual harassment of two non student university employees. CeeLo Green has apologized for controversial tweets regarding rape that the singer made in August 2014 after he pleaded no contest to drug charges. I do realize in retrospect it was highly sen sensitive. Him, I think he means insensitive, what I tweeted. Highly irresponsible. He said it did stem from emotion causing some involuntary action. I do believe that maybe just possibly we could all give each other a margin for human error. Green said of his tweets, in those instances I do realize I'm an artist, that I'm flawed, and sometimes, you know, you don't think. I was most certainly not thinking, not considering whom I might offend, and to those many people, however many or however few, I'd like to take this opportunity to apologize again. Green, unquote, Green pleaded no contest last year to one felony count of furnishing a controlled substance, stemming from an incident a couple years earlier, where a woman accused him of slipping ecstasy into her drink. It wasn't really ecstasy, it was jello. As part of his plea deal, Green admitted he shared the drug with the woman but did not slip it. He was ordered to complete his community service and some uh, anonymous meetings. He was not charged with rape after prosecutors found the sex to be consensual, and soon after pleading no contest, he defended himself on Twitter where he implied it's not rape if the person is, quote, passed out, unquote. If someone is passed out, they're not even with you consciously, so with implies consent. People who have really been raped, remember... Three exclamation points after that. He soon remo removed those tweets, apologized, and briefly deleted his Twitter account entirely. He was so regretful about what he tweeted 
and how people perceived him. He wanted to name his new album Girl Power, but he ultimately changed his mind. And Kelly Osborne has apologized for remarks she made on The View that suggested if Latinos were expelled from the United States, there'd be no one to clean Donald Trump's toilets. It's, it's getting classier in here. I don't know what the deal is. Her comments Tuesday while a guest on the ABC show was directed at the Republican presidential candidate. She questioned why Trump thought, who Trump thought would clean his toilets if there were no Latinos left in the U.S. She was quickly interrupted by View co-host Rosie Perez and backed off her comment. Many expressed outrage online. She apologized for her, quote, poor choice of words. The Apologies of the Week, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Ladies and gentlemen, a story I not really uh, banged on about on this broadcast is uh, the very pricey and long-delayed new F-35 aircraft, the Joint Strike Fighter. A, a blog entitled War is Boring comes up with this report. A test pilot who's flown it says the new stealth jet cannot turn or climb fast enough to hit an enemy plane during a dogfight or to dodge the enemy's own gunfire. That's what the pilot reported following a day of mock air battles earlier this year. Quote, the F-35 was at a distinct energy disadvantage, he wrote in a scathing five-page brief. This, says the blog, is the latest evidence of fundamental problems with the design of the F-35, which had a total program cost of more than a trillion dollars, ladies and gentlemen is history's most expensive weapon. Why should it work? Worst thing about it is customer service for it is in Bangalore. Ladies and gentlemen, that concludes this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week at the same time over these same stations over NPR worldwide throughout Europe, the USN 440 cable system in Japan, around the world through the facilities of the American Forces Network up and down the east coast of North America via the shortwave giant WBCQ, the planet, 7.490 megahertz shortwave on the mighty 104 in Berlin. And soon on Soho Radio right here in London. Available for your smartphone through Stitcher.com and available as a free podcast wherever you are at uh, 
iTunes, WWNO.org, SoundCloud, Sideshow Network, and TuneIn.com. And also available on the Internet at two different locations, live and archive whenever you want at HarryShearer.com and KCSN.org. And it'd be just like the F-35 being able to dogfight if you'd agree to join with me then. Would you? Already, thank you very much. Uh-huh. Show chapeau to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago, and exile and Hawaii desks. Thanks as always to Pam Halstead, to Jenny Lawson at WWNO New Orleans, and to Adrian Bottom. He of the magic fingers for help here at Global Radio in London for help with today's broadcast. See him on on uh, Periscope the next uh, few hours if you like. The email address for this broadcast, playlist of the music heard here on, and your opportunity to buy Cars I Talk t-shirts. That doesn't happen every day. Oh, yes, it does at harryshearer.com. And I'm on Twitter at the Harry Shearer. And let me just say this. If I ever get Tom Cruise as a guest on this program, I, I would ask him about Scientology putting that out there. Just so you can tell the difference between them. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Change is Easy radio network. So long from London. <laughs>